0: Everybody, this is Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor scene by scene. This is Josh Newfeld of joshcomics.com and I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And today we are going to be talking about the third scene of American Splendor which starts at uh, 4 minutes and 49 seconds and goes to 6 minutes and 5 seconds. And in this scene we Basically, start the narrative, and we see Paul Giamatti as Harvey for the first time, sitting in a doctor's office, because he seems to be having throat trouble. Um, in fact, it's called voice trouble. Nineteen seventy-five, and um, well, before
1: before we get into that scene of a man, yeah, I want to make a quick correction for uh, the last episode. In episode two, uh, we suggested that artist Doug Allen ape the styles of R. Crumb and other American Splendor artists in the credit sequence.
0: Yeah, I'm absolutely sure that that's the case. (laughs) But. What? (laughs) But, hold the phone. Wait.
1: Upon further investigation, it seems. By our crack team. (laughs) That some of those panels were indeed lifted from the source material. At least it looks like that to me. So having said that, it looks as if some of the Crumb panels came from american splendor issues number three and number four okay the stories were how i quit collecting records and put out a comic book with money i saved and the other one would have been from uh standing behind old jewish ladies in supermarket lines
0: okay so both of those stories are actually going to come up later in the movie itself but what you're saying is basically they took the art from those crumb stories and they replaced the word balloons or took them out altogether. They they edited them in some some, ways.
1: And it looks like that to me. Again, it's very possible that uh, they had Doug Allen or an artist had aped those as well. Yeah. But they are similar, very similar to panels from the original comics.
0: Cool. That's interesting. And it's actually funny because, you know, I think everybody in their mind has sort of an idea of what Robert Crumb's artwork looks like, mm-hmm. but it, it, it is, he changed, his artwork changed and evolved quite a lot over yes. the years. And yeah. so some of those panels, when I first looked at them in the context of the movie, they just looked a little weird to me mm-hmm. because they didn't fit my idea of what crumb's style looks like but when I saw when you showed me the actual comics I was like oh yeah that,
1: that that's him. You know and, and as a side note real quick it, it's funny cuz it does look more like a, a a childish looking version of of you know an old grumpy man as it were <laughs> and uh when I look at my work on the Quitter that I drew in 2005 it was definitely a more cartoonier style even though I was doing you know autobio comics it, it looks like, you know, shorter bodies, you know, bigger heads type mm-hmm. thing. And I don't know if that was me kind of like responding to something that Crumb did early on, you know, because, again, when you take on a project working with Picar, you are looking at, you know, uh, PCAR is somewhat synonymous
0: with Crumb, yeah, at least the early stuff. Definitely. So
1: you, you can't help but be influenced mm-hmm. in some way. So well, That's let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the scene.
0: Yeah, so Harvey, uh, it opens up with Harvey sitting um, on a, an examination table in a ratty old t-shirt. And well, actually, uh, it
1: transitions from what we were starting to identify as the Picard in between the gutters zone. Right, right. <laughs> and it slams, you yeah. know, switches over to this other scene, and it does have a caption, like in a comic book. Right. And, and I think they
0: do carry that throughout the entire film. Yeah, but many scenes start with a title in a caption box. You're right. From the comics, yeah. yeah. But um, just to describe what happens in the scene, he's sitting there on the doctor's examination table. And it, it is a perfect transition from that fake documentary footage where Harvey was talking about how he hopes his voice will hold out. Right. And here we are, you know, smack into a narrative scene from that, that starts the movie and is basically taken from a, a Harvey Picar American Splendor story. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's visiting a doctor because he's having voice trouble so this is now going back farther in time. If, if we think of the, the documentary footage as Harvey Picar, the actual real Harvey Picar of 2003, when the movie came out, Mm -hmm. we are now going back 30 years to 1975. Mm -hmm. Is that 30 years? Yeah. And, uh, so we're seeing the young, the younger Harvey Picard played by Paul Giamatti there in the doctor's office. Wait, is that
1: 75? Or if we look at the, the comic book, I think the comic book came out in 1980, but I don't,
0: yeah, remember. in the film, it's okay. So that's. Do you want to get into that now? The, well, the, the let, time let's difference? describe the scene okay. and, then,
1: and then we'll get into how the, the, it matches with the comics and in his real life and how the narrative in the movie right. works. Right.
0: So basically, it, this is funny because this is kind of the first scene where we're really talking about, like, uh, you know, a narrative of scene, but. The scene in in the, the gist of it is is that Harvey is complaining to the doctor that he's having marital trouble with his wife because he's having voice trouble, right? And then he starts moaning about how uh, his wife finds him a social embarrassment, <laughs> and because he's a file clerk and she's a PhD student, so we're setting up this conflict in his marriage his, and his own neurosis about things, right? You know? Like who knows how much of this is his own projection versus right. what right. you know has actually come out? We find that out in a, in a future scene, but right now we tend to think that this might be his own paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the doctor sort of treats him like he doesn't take him very seriously. Like he right. he seems familiar with Harvey enough to to kind of not really be paying attention to what the content of what he's saying and is just more interested in finding out what's wrong with him.
1: And even when the doctor suggests it could be bad, uh, Harvey jumps right to, oh, I have throat cancer. It right. must be throat cancer. Yeah, Which in a way is a foreshadowing. Of course. Yeah. Um, and the doctor is like, you Know just be quiet for a few months and 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 at for that a few m- months, and he yells. <laughs> uh, and I, 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 in my notes, I wrote it's probably because he knows he's extremely opinionated mm-hmm. and can't keep his mouth shut, you know. Exactly, and even the doctor who's just met him can identify this.
0: Or I don't know, do you feel like the doctor just met him or that he did kind of oh, already? You're know right, him? I, it's hard, it's there's hard a familiarity. You could, either he's like the type. Harvey Pekar is the type, you meet him right away and you're like, right. oh, I know this kind of guy. Right. You know, He's a talker, he's a complainer. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, and actually,
1: so what I wanted to talk about briefly was how this scene, which runs, what, a minute?
0: About minute. a minute and 15 seconds or so, yeah.
1: You know, is derived from like a 20-some-odd page story that Harvey did uh, titled An Everyday Horror Story that appeared in American Splendor number no. 5, drawn by Jerry Shamray. Uh, and in it, Harvey loses his voice on the heels of his honeymoon. He's just been married to his second wife. Right. And it was Lark.
0: Yes. Helen and Lark Hall. Helen Lark Hall. Known as Lark.
1: And the story deals with the, his grueling process of recovery and how it took months for Harvey. And he feared the entire time it would break up his marriage. And he goes to many different doctors. I just read the story just now. And everyone has a different opinion or what they think is going to happen. But everyone says the same thing. It's like, stop talking. You know, just, you got to just be quiet. And and he has a real tough time with this. And I kind of came up with a theory, although this may not work because this is issue five of American Splendor. And as we said in a previous podcast, you know, he, these were annual affairs. So that meant like, if this was issue five, this is the fifth year of his publication history. And so issue one he didn't have these problems, these voice problems, right? So a little bit of what I my, I was gonna posit here was that That's throughout right. throughout the comic, there are many instances where Harvey has to write his thoughts and his feelings in order to communicate. And I wonder if this process activated a more profound commitment to writing and expose the more quotidian aspects of his life, which he, you know, he's famous for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, early on, maybe in the first couple of issues of American Splendor, was he writing more about, like, the people around him and, and you know, the things that were happening? Hmm. But then it became more interior, hmm. you know? And I'm wondering if in losing his voice and having to write more about himself, you know, what he was afraid hmm. of or the things he needed, and he even shows notes of him saying to his... Uh, new wife. Listen, I understand if you want to leave me. Right. You know this sucks, yeah. and it's he said par- maudlin notes. Yeah, yeah, and that's something that you know. What? When would you have an opportunity to write that? Until you started to feel this kind of hmm. this personal fear, you know. Yeah, and so it was making me think. Like you know, by issue five, was he digging a little deeper? You know, and I think you've read more of his. his uh, you're more versed in his earlier
0: works. Do you recall anything like that? You know, I mean, I, I hadn't thought of it directly, but I do feel like you're right. I think the early issues, um, issues one, two, and three were more like stories that he had saved up over his life of, of sort of like great anecdotes mm-hmm. or weird characters that he met or, or mm-hmm. friends or stories that just kind of had been waiting to be told. That either were about him or or about somebody else but weren't, at what you're talking about, really digging deep into his and inner then, emotions and psychology. And then as as the
1: issue started to, you know, come out, they were more in real time, mm-hmm. you know, within exactly. a year. Exactly, like each year was sort of a recap. Each issue was a recap, basically, of what had happened. Like a highlights year. or milestones or something that had happened. Yeah. And I think that that kind of crisis, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, activated maybe more of a commitment towards writing, you know. Right. And exposing vulnerable thoughts and, and, you know, and opinions and being highly opinionated, you know, because he can come off as a jerk, you know, uh, often, and he's okay with that. You know, it's human, it's complicated, you know, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, if if there wasn't something so dramatic happening, he could return back to his observational materials, Mm -hmm. you know, and talk about jazz or, you know, the avant-garde.
0: Of course, the, you know, the downside of that is, so the upside is that, you know, you're really sort of interrogating yourself and you're Mm -hmm. getting into some interesting stuff and learning about yourself and revealing that to people. But the downside of it is, is that these stories are incredibly wordy. Oh. Um, and I can only imagine yeah. Gary Shamrays having to letter yeah. all of these and then find room for the art in all of them. And I think in this story, he did a really good job. And it seemed like he really, there's like only like four panels on a page for a lot of them, which I mean, gives you room for the lettering. But there was
1: one particular panel I noticed where like it was like. I don't know, four-fifths of the panel was text. Yeah. And then he drew the eyes of the character yes.
0: underneath. Yeah. I mean, again... Sort of he, the classic thing you tell beginning comics writers not to do is to you know let the pictures tell the story yeah. and, and try to be as pithy as possible. But yeah. Harvey is able to pull it off because um, he's so quirky and, and because he had artists who were sort of... I would he,
1: lean on the artists on this one, Josh. Yeah. I, I think you know Harvey was going to write what was going to write no matter what. And I think it really was uh, up to the artist to pull it off in a lot of ways. Because artists are graphic designers and they're the ones who are showing the story. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how concerned Harvey was with that. Yeah. And having worked with him myself, I think he just kind of left it up to you, mm-hmm. you know. And as long as all those words were there, as long as he, what, you know, he was, wanted to convey. Yeah. You know, And I, and I have examples of trying to cut like one little panel in a graphic novel and he was outraged by the idea of that
0: mm-hmm. uh, but he was fine if you wanted to sort of uh, uh space the story out a little bit sure. more and add more art to give the the writing a little more Hey, as long breathe. as all the text was in yeah yeah know? well listen he uh he knew what he was doing, obviously, because otherwise we wouldn't still be talking about him. There wouldn't be a movie made about him. That's but true. I got to hand it to Gary Shamray because um, one thing that he did that I think Harvey kind of was always looked for was artists who just drew in a very pedestrian but realistic way. And Shamray, is just, his, his likenesses of Harvey in particular are quite well, it, stunning. They're all right, really so. good because if you've seen video footage of Harvey from this period like from the late 70s, early 80s right. like when he was on you know little snippets of TV shows or when he started to get onto um, David Letterman and mm-hmm. stuff, the, this looks exactly how he looked. Well, back then. I mean
1: okay, so a lot of artists today seem to be, rely on photographs, right which you know I uh, sometimes they pull it off, sometimes it's just very blatant and, and, and not anything I'm, I'm impressed by to be honest. But early on, it was clear that Shamray had some kind of relationship with Harvey, where he probably did take pictures. I mean, these look like
0: they're derived from photos, right? So, apropos of that, in the um, introduction to *American Splendor: The Life of Times of the Life and Times of Harvey Picard, uh Robert Crumb states that Gary Shamray, quote went all the way taking hundreds of photos wow. of Picar, his wife, his apartment, the streets of his neighborhood, and so on, and drew from the photos. Mm. So mm-hmm. basically, he really did um, put upon himself to, to, to be the, the documentarian. Right. Right of Harvey's life. And actually, that, to me,
1: as much as I enjoy Crumb and a lot of the artists, there's something about Shamray, especially as his art evolved, mm-hmm. that to me looks like the classic Harvey Picard yeah, story. Yeah, I agree. You know, that documentary style that he introduced because Crum was cartoonier, you know, mm-hmm. did come from an underground kind of sensibility. Uh, and, and before
0: that, a kind of Looney Tunes greeting exactly. card style. Absolutely. You
1: know? Which is a lot of fun yeah. and, and very friendly in a lot of ways. Very bouncy. Yes. But there was something that just, to me, says Autobio comics with Sham Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost has like this kind of Ralph Steadman ink line style. Yeah, it's you that know?
0: sketchy inking that I think... Makes it tra- brings it above just somebody who apes the photo, It and transcends the, the photo. photo into something exactly. expressionistic. You know, I, I agree, and there is something. I mean, it's very down to earth. It's not dynamic. It's not super heroic in any way, and At in all. that way, it very right. much fits the tone yeah. of Harvey's work. And he did this
1: nice stippling kind of effect where. If he was going to abandon backgrounds, it became like this emotional kind of German expressionism, you know, mm-hmm. in the in the backgrounds, which is a lot, which is very cool, and kind of set the tone for a Harvey Picard story
0: exactly. But it is interesting it's- I wasn't really clear on all of this when I was reading a lot of these comics, like which wife was which. Like Harvey had mm-hmm. been married, it was had been married three times. This was his second wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was reading a lot of these stories, kind of out of context and stuff. And, and also
1: when we we were, into, when, I think when we got to American Splendor later, uh, Joyce Brabner was everywhere. Like you yeah, know, so like
0: she was very very much more a persona and a co character with Harvey. Right. And I don't know if when I read this story, if I got that this was not um, Joyce Joyce because right. she's. Could be hers. She's There's like a similarity, similarity in, in her in physicality. Yes. Yeah, and the way that Gary Shamray draws her, she almost seems less of a fully fleshed out person than Harvey does. Like she's more of a of just a comic book character as as opposed to a, a specific person. But and I guess that's just I guess Jerry had me. actually
1: met Lark, and like she was yeah.
0: It, he so Jerry Shamray is a Cleveland artist himself. So that... So when I, he took and these pictures... a lot of Harvey's original artists were people from Cleveland. Were local. Yeah. Okay. And so like
1: like she existed during these comics and I, and I don't remember yeah, what issue... Yeah, so that's the other thing. So, okay. so
0: we should get into that. So yeah. for the... This is one of these things where the... For the purpose of making a film, you need to make certain changes mm-hmm. um, to... Mm-hmm make real life fit into the necessities of a good narrative structure. And and,
1: and real quick, with that in mind, so this minute and 15 second scene goes on for months in the comic, you know, which is this long, you know, 20 some odd page story that drags. I mean, there's a lot going on and you can feel like... What's cool about it actually, because I was reading, I was like, come on, let's get to the end of this story. (laughs) But he was making you feel what he was going Mm -hmm. through in a lot of ways. But it's literally just like one minute... In the movie, so we can move on, you right? Know? But
0: that you're exactly right. But also, in a way, even more importantly for the for the structure of this film overall, and it, it being a uh, a romance in a ways, right. they totally change the time of when this scene happens. So they so okay in real life Harvey Picard was married to Lark from 1977 to 1981 Mm -hmm. and so when he did American Splendor number one he was not yet married to her but by issue two three four or five he was now married to this woman Lark and this issue this story came out in issue number five when he was still married to her and is about their honeymoon and you know all of this other stuff but they had to for the purpose of the film and Harvey's journey as a character and finding fulfillment with his creativity and his identity and his identity they predated this uh, scene to be back to 1975 before he had ever done American Splendor right before his, his so they're yeah. the dates of when he was married to uh, to Lark and right. you know it's. It's something that had to be done. When you look at the structure of the film overall, it makes right. a lot more sense. For Which that is to why happen.
1: Harvey was just checking the script for the construction, Exact for the structure. <laughs> yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. So one quick thing um, also that I I loved about the. Um, I just wanted to ask you what you thought. So, in the original story, an everyday horror story from American Splendor number 5, 1980, he talks about how they were going on their honeymoon when when um, he had this voice trouble, and they went out to the West Coast for their honeymoon, and they first stopped in San Francisco and stayed with some friends. I know, I saw that. And to me, that is Crumb, right? Well, it's Crumb. It's Crumb and possibly Spain Rodriguez. And Spain Rodriguez. And, yeah.
1: And, I, and if this took place in 1980 would say
0: 70, no, no, it took place in 77 because that was when it was published in 1980, but this story takes place was in, in 1977. 1977. But wasn't he friends with these guys in the 60s? Well, he was friends, well, who was drawing for Harvey Pekar in 1977? Right. Oh, Robert Crumb. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so this—I don't would know be, when he met Spain, but he did meet Crumb back in the '60s. Right. But he was still friends with him, or at least they had a good working relationship because Crumb was drawing for Harvey all throughout the late '70s and early '80s. Right. So this makes sense. He's just not saying who it he's is. He's not saying. He's kind of being coy about it. He's but being then a coy, yeah. I'm sure he told Gary Shamray draw Crumb right. and Spain and Spain. So that's yeah. kind of just a nice little Easter egg for a little people cameo. Who, yeah. Who uh, yeah. who know those guys? Well, I mean, that, so that that that.
1: How did you discover Harvey Picard for the first time, and, and how did you connect with him?
0: That is a good question. So, like you, I grew up mostly reading superhero comics. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was a big Tintin fan, mm-hmm. so I was kind of getting the you know a little bit of the European influence in there as well. But all the comics that I read were fiction, were well, fantasy I you stories showing me, or
1: adventure comics. Yeah, Tintin and Asterix.
0: Yeah, Tintin and Asterix. Asterix. was a big one, and too. And then
1: you were a big Teen Titans fan by Marv Wolfman and uh, sure. George
0: Perez. I was a DC-only guy for a long time. I oh would boy. not read Marvel Comics. Why? I don't know why I why? decided. I thought that you had to be on one team or the other. It was Just, like the Mets and the Yankees. You had C- to... Coke and Pepsi. Yeah. yeah. So at some point... After I met you when we were in high school I and and Byrne and Claremont's X-Men was just winding up mm-hmm. and Daredevil by Frank Miller, it was clear that there was some really good comics being made Simon by Marvel. Simon Thor. So I finally went over to the dark side and I started reading <laughs> Marvel comics too. But yeah, to get to American Splendor, I mean, it, it really was something I didn't discover until I had kind of transitioned out of reading superhero comics. I, I was just sort of losing interest i felt there was a lot of repetition that was going okay. on it was also kind of not the best time for superhero comics in the late 80s early 90s uh, they, yeah Surrey i had, agree i, I had think a dry that, period there
1: well it just you know it, i think that, that they suggest uh, in the industry that there's these five-year windows of yeah. you know that you go through you know and you know i think we've lasted a lot longer to be frank but our superheroes i think no we're, I'm, I'm josh no oh, sorry, yeah, sorry and you're not funny um uh, <laughs> But, uh, so, you know, we had 70s and 80s, and then come the 90s. Yeah. At, wasn't it was was the, that all the
0: dark comics and, and all the, and the Wolverine? Image. And, well,
1: to be honest, the dark comics happened in 85 and 86 with Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns. Okay, but it was but all that the was bad commentary. imitations of them that exactly. sort of took over the industry. The, the yeah. bad Im- imitations, early image comics, that yeah. kind of stuff. So, I think what happened is that... I know for, I can speak for myself that I read a few superhero mm-hmm. comics, mm-hmm. but I started to read a lot more independent comics mm-hmm. and you discover yes. this stuff.
0: Yeah. So where did you like discover? you turned me on to Vertigo and, and uh, Sandman and stuff like that. Yeah, and then but... I went from that to kind of, to, you know, 8-Ball and Hate. Oh and, yeah, and Fantagraphics. A lot of Fantagraphics of comics. And those yeah. comics So it was around that time, I was traveling around, I mentioned that last episode with my girlfriend, I kind of dropped my whole previous life for like Mm -hmm. a year and a half and was a traveler a backpacker and i lived in prague and i was doing uh illustrations for papers out there and really just kind of cleansing the palate. and somehow i came across this book called comic book rebels which was a set of interviews with different comic creators outside of the mainstream the most mainstream of them being like alan moore who's always fascinating to read i always read his comics no matter what he was doing but in that book was Scott McCloud. There was an early thing on understanding comics. And then there, and Joyce Brabner and Harvey Picar were in there. And I was reading about him. I'd heard of Harvey. And I think maybe I'd even seen a couple of his appearances on David Letterman. Mm-hmm. But really had never, you know, even opened one of his comics.
1: And I feel like there was a documentary that came out uh, or some kind of a uh, where they interviewed a, a lot of different kind of cartoonists like Heimer, the Hernandez brothers and... I remember Picar was on that as well so, so you're that's talking about like saying.
0: a TV or film documentary it was like a 90 minute thing oh like, I, yeah I don't think I saw that I
1: think it's only on VHS to be honest you okay. know? You, it, although it probably is on the internet somewhere yeah. but yeah so you saw like the the, the, the book version of yeah you know, and they of, had
0: samples of all these people's comics and I remember right. reading like a page of one of Harvey's and I was like this is interesting you know like this is getting this is this is the kind of comics that I would like to be to know more about but real quick so so you're kind of slowing down on superheroes and really yeah. i Superheroes,
1: you, you're not reading Tintin and Asterix anymore.
0: I'd read them all and they weren't, there were no more being No more made. to read. Yeah.
1: So what, in comics or graphic novels, what, what were you holding on to before you discovering Peacar? Anything? Do you remember? Or maybe it might have been 8-Ball, which came out like twice a year or once a year or something, yeah, right? Yeah, well,
0: so I took that break. Right. And when I was in Europe, I wasn't reading read anything. Any okay. I was, you know, I really took a break. And so when I came back to the States, my girlfriend and I, we moved to Chicago which happened to be at that point kind of like a hotbed of, of indie comics. You know, Dan Klaus was had just left there. Chris Ware was just starting up there um, with Jimmy Corrigan. Um, there was some great strips in the alternative paper. So I was getting into all this stuff. There was a great comic book store near me called Quimby's. And I found like a couple of American Splendor anthologies for like $3. Bo- $3. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah. So I bought those. I devoured them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time I was reading, I got into uh, Duplex Planet Illustrated. I mean, I started reading that as well. I think Mm -hmm. I had first read some of those in the back of 8-Ball. And Mm -hmm. I remember talking to you about that. Like, hey, did you read these funny back page comics, these real stories of of these oddball characters? You know, I I love that. I feel like there's something here. And we were kind of egging each other on, you and I, and starting to want to get back into comics again. Anyhow, I got it in my head. So I started sending out samples of my stuff to various comic book publishers trying Mm. to get work just to see what what the possibilities but not marvel dc
1: you weren't trying to do
0: i don't think no but i think i sent to like um you know dark horse samples like i i'll be an artist for somebody whatever i because as i said before i wasn't i didn't have the confidence of a writer yet Mm. and i sent some samples to harvey along with a bunch of other folks and none of the other companies got back to me or they would send me a form letter, you know, if I got a form letter that actually made me feel like at least I'd been acknowledged mm-hmm. my existence. I, I, I was a real person. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hear back from Harvey either and then one day... You weren't day, good enough to be a person. I wasn't. I, you weren't listen, good enough artist to be a person. That's, that's, how, we, that's how we roll. <laughs> um, but one day I got a phone call and I, I picked it up and, and he said, hey, this is Harvey Picar. I got your, you know, samples. And I... I couldn't believe it. I was home, you know, it was right. one of those lucky coincidences. And we just started talking. He's like, yeah, you know, your stuff is interesting, you know, I'd, maybe I'd like to use you, you know, sometime. And he just had this very particular way of talking, and we just started shooting the... Right, you know, and uh, came out. We're both Jewish, you know. He wanted to know more about my background and was I religious? Da, 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 da. And it was like he was he was interviewing me. He wanted to. It wasn't just about like how I drew. Yeah, he was auditioning you as a person. He was auditioning me as a as as a collaborator. Right, and, and, and yeah, because the samples and, I sent him were mostly like goofy stuff I had done in Prague that was that I you know was like a sort of fictional uh stuff i had done with but a, knowing a that you did autobell
1: comics you had to have yeah. shown something like that
0: i don't think i i, I don't know i oh. can't remember but right. i don't think i had done anything right. I, I really had nothing to show him wow. um and i'm trying to remember but i think i had already done a couple of stories at that point for for david greenberger for duplex planet mm-hmm. illustrated so i had a little bit of quote-unquote professional work under my belt right but yeah we hit it off and he said he said listen uh you know i'd like to find a a piece for you we agreed like a short piece to start out and but then nothing happened for a long time and then like this weird thing so then our cancer year came out Mm -hmm. by by he and Joyce Brabner and they were with with Frank Stack with Frank Stack thank you and um, they lived in in uh, Cleveland I lived in Chicago both Midwestern cities not too far from each other and he called me up one day and he said, uh, listen, i I've got this new book coming out and Joyce and I are going to come through town to do a reading. And we wonder if we could stay with you guys. What? <laughs> and, uh, anyway, let me put Joyce on the phone and she can talk to you about it. Wow. So I got on the phone with Joyce Bradner, I don't who think I've ever also heard this story. <laughs> had only known as a character in a comic book. And right. she was exactly like the way she had, appeared in the comic and right. she just starts saying so yeah josh so listen you know i hope it would be okay you know if we came and stayed with you guys for a day or two and i just started sweating and freaking out because <laughs> we lived in this 300 a month apartment that was falling apart in a you know sort of rundown part of chicago and we didn't have an extra room or anything i think sari had a little my wife my girlfriend at the time had a little office in the back but it anyway this was sort of like totally bizarre to me. This was someone who I you know looked up to and idolized as a as a revolutionary and right. as as a someone I hope to work for right. um and all of a sudden he was gonna like become part of my actual life for yeah. these two days, and I just didn't know how to process all that now so one thing happened after another and it turned out that they didn't need to they kind of pulled out maybe but, they said that we say were yes. i was like sure <laughs> and uh, talking on zary later i'm trying to figure out how this is all going to work right knowing they wouldn't expect it to be you know a four-star hot- hotel but still right. we were 20 somethings barely yeah. getting by in a yeah. dumpy apartment but one thing happened after another and then they it turned out they didn't need to to stay with us Um, And I was super relieved about that. But then I did end up going to their reading um, at a bookstore in downtown Chicago. And I introduced myself afterwards. And this was the first time I'd ever met Harvey in person. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I got to give you that story, you know. So maybe a few weeks after that, he gave me my first story to do, which was a a one-pager that ended up running in the Village Voice Mm. And I was really nervous about doing that right. And I asked him for all this photographic reference and stuff. It was, it was this character that Harvey was talking to on the phone. And mm. I I was trying to do my Jerry Sham part. Yep, yep. And uh, that piece came off well. And then mm. um, he liked it. And he gave me another slightly longer piece, which I think came out in one of the first issues that Dark Horse did. And then I ended up doing a, uh, a 10-page story with Joyce that was like a follow-up to... Um, our cancer year. Oh, that was just written by her. That would be in American Splendor. That was in American Splendor. is the Dark Horse. This was series? during the Dark Horse right. era. And so, yeah, within a year or so, I guess I had become kind of one of the regular yep. illustrators for uh, for the book. So,
1: and you, the last story you drew for him was in the Vertigo series, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah. So okay. that's you know going. Yeah, I mean, in the end, I ended up illustrating for him over a fifteen-year period. Yeah. But of course, all of the stuff that I illustrated for him was way after anything that in the movie shows up in the movie. So you know, that's one of the first things. If anybody knows Harvey's work, and if they know the movie, they always ask me, "Oh, is any of your stuff in the movie?" And I'm, yeah, I had to say no.
1: It's funny because that's so funny because the the majority of the work I did with Harvey, and I did do a bunch of short stories for the Vertigo series. But you know, the quitter takes place between the 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 kid who portrays right. you know Harvey as a yeah. child. You know, so basically at a between scene one and two. Between scene one and two, is movie. the majority of the work I did for Harvey. <laughs> well, we'll
0: get into next episode. Yeah. I want to talk to sure. you about your about your history with Harvey because it, it starts off with a bang. It's pretty funny. But one one thing, just going back to the scene real quick, um, and then we should probably wrap it up. Is uh, There's something so funny and and reveals so much about this Harvey character that we see here. He's at the doctor's office. He hasn't even put on a clean t-shirt. He's got like this ripped shirt. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's slumped down at the table. And I just found that just super funny because it's saying so much about this character. But also, as someone yourself who's known for having holes in his shirts at <laughs> times, did you notice that as a, as a character trait or identify with it? or I did not notice it because I guess I relate to it so much. <laughs> it's just I like, don't yeah, see it. that's what people wear when they go to the doctor. Isn't that what you wear? I mean, they always say you're supposed to wear clean underwear in case you get hit by a car, right? Sure. So. And I've been hit by cars. <laughs> in clean underwear yes yeah, so um <laughs> the the scene at the at the doctor's office of course made me wonder about you and the doctor's office because you've been to uh i have you've had to go to a i've had my of-
1: my uh i've been hit by cars fallen off a of ruse and, and yeah been just hurt. the usual stuff uh and
0: he, and you did a comic
1: about all the various th- yeah uh, that's right a story called proud flesh yes you know, that scene, it, you know, it's more about his character than it right. is about the diagnosis in a lot of ways. You know, it's what, how he deals with the, you know, the possibility of losing his voice. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it made me think about, well, your voice, you're a writer, you mm-hmm. know, like what what does that also mean? And that's why I started thinking about that scene in, in contrast with the, the comic book source material. You know? Sure. And that journey he went through with like, you know, the, dealing with the horror of what happens when you lose your voice. But you still have your hands; and you can still write. Yeah, you know,
0: right, right. So I guess that about wraps it up for this scene. We're gonna have more to talk about related to this issue in the next episode. Oh, you know, I did want to mention that in the original script, which I checked out, mm-hmm. that the scene where he's talking about the social embarrassment and and worrying about you know his wife leaving him, they actually did have a little snippet, and I'm wondering if they shot it where mm-hmm. he they they kind of over explained they're like well yeah it was this belated se- you know honeymoon that we went on um and i you know was worried that uh that uh it was a long time you know where i couldn't talk mm-hmm. and i thought that my wife was going to you know lose interest in me or that i wasn't going to be able to communicate with her so they were really they were tying in the in the original script they were tying it in more to the original story that you were talking about but well, i feel like they made a wise choice in the way they cut it Especially with what happens in the next scene. It may have
1: been shot or, or, you know, put in, you know, the original, you know, footage. But I think what happens is that you write these things not knowing how they're necessarily going to be performed. Yeah. And because Paul Giamatti just creates this character out of Harvey in such a way that it's almost like you you can remove a lot of words because of his behavior alone. Mm -hmm. And like, so a lot of his behavior can tell you so much. Yeah. And in fact, when we get to the next scene, it's just this one scene with this woman. And you can just basically see their entire marriage yes. reduced into one yes. scene and, and why, you know, what happens, happens.
0: Well, let's hold that thought for the next scene, which we will get to in episode four. So until then, you can check us out at scenebyscenepodcast.com and also Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean on Facebook. And so until then, I am Josh Neufeld. And I'm Dean Haspiel. And this is Scene by Scene. See you next time.